0: a firm belief here at Taylor's first that where God's word is read and proclaimed it will not come back null and void for it tells us that and so we're thankful for the Gideon's ministry and we're we're happy today to uh, partner with them and some of our own members are a faithful part of the Gideons to get the word of God out anywhere they possibly can They'll be in our welcome center there along with our ushers taking up the offering they'll be there and if you're happy to give some to them we would love for you too to help spread the word of God turn with me if you will to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 we'll be looking starting in verse 16 and moving through the end of the chapter today Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 34. I want to commend to you this evening 5 p.m our service together We have three worship services on a sunday morning but then on uh every so often about once a quarter we come together for one service in the evening to celebrate the lord's service the lord's supper together this evening so we would love for you to come and be a part of that time together at 5 p.m here in this space as we celebrate the lord's supper as a church body turning to acts chapter 17 We have worked our way through this second missionary journey of Paul and where Paul has gone not everything has gone well he's Philippians uh, with Philippi he's with the uh, uh, having been beaten preaching the gospel and then thrown in prison and then he moves on to Thessalonica where again he has met with a mob who is coming after him for proclaiming the gospel He moves on to Berea having had to sneak out of Thessalonica and in Berea he finds some who who examine the scriptures and study the scriptures but quickly those from Thessalonica hear about him and so they come there to Berea to stir up trouble again and so Paul has found himself just one right after another having to leave town having to struggle and through many trials and tribulations of proclaiming the gospel and so At the end here of the time in Berea it seems as though they say to Paul hey we need to get you out of town the Thessalonians are up to no good we need to get you out of town and you need to go to Athens go down there we'll take care of Paul Silas and Timothy saying we'll take care of everything here buttoning it all up and making sure everybody's okay you need to go on to Athens Paul maybe even take some time for yourself and relax for a little bit and so they put him on a boat to go to Athens by himself as Timothy and Silas stay behind and so our passage this morning picks up right there in verse 16 in verse 16 as Paul has reached Athens and he's waiting on them so we'll read together Acts chapter 17 verse 16 Luke writes now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him as he saw That the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said what does this babbler wish to say others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, his offspring. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful, God, as we gather together and able to sing together with our students leading us that that we can praise you, that you have invited us in to worship you. And so god today we recognize that we are completely utterly dependent upon you and so god move in our midst even now send your spirit through your word to to change our hearts and our lives help us to build our life upon you lord upon your truth for your glory we ask all of these things in jesus name amen there's probably no greater verse explaining the gospel if i was to say to you guys hey Tell me one verse in the Bible that will explain the gospel to me. Most of us would turn to John chapter 3, verse 16, right? There's probably not another verse in the scriptures that, that tell us, encapsulate the gospel so, so clearly than John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But even John three sixteen, the great verse that it is, with the great truth that it contains, even John three sixteen presupposes some knowledge about Christianity. It presupposes some idea about the context that it's found in and, and who it's talking about and what it's seeking to do. If you were just to take John 316 and, and state it in a place that has no idea about the scriptures, they've never heard of the prophets, they've never heard of, of Moses, they've never heard of the writings or the Psalms, they've never even heard of of the New Testament. If you were just to take that into a place like that, maybe a place like much of our world that has many gods, polytheism and other things, if you were to take John three sixteen and just say it into that culture or that context then they could have some serious questions like, which God are you talking about? Or, or what do you mean by his son? And how did that come about? And, and what does eternal life and perish mean? Are those two things are, are different in different contexts in different places? And so in other words, just to drop John three sixteen into a place that has no context for it may not be the most, most helpful thing to do. There are some times when we have to go all the way back to the beginning, and this is true more so even in our culture today i mean clearly for the most part many of us have known john 3:16 most of our life and most of the people we speak to know something about that passage or can kind of put it in into their terms and understand what it means but increasingly even in our own culture in our own day in our own age there are people that have no context for it even here in south carolina Even here amongst our workers, they've never heard of the scriptures and they've never heard of God's word and surely never read it. And so ultimately, what we see is that there's times when we've got to go back to the beginning. We've got to meet our hearers where they are in their knowledge and take them from there to the gospel. Our example of this is in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 17. Our example here is Paul. Paul. Paul is waiting here in in Athens if you will and by waiting it's that's word is doing a lot of work because for Paul he cannot sit idle because he sees a bunch of idols i worked on that for a while Paul just can't sit back he's in this town and, and, and notice what it says Paul was there now now uh Timothy and Silas and others probably said, hey, Paul, you go on down to Athens. We'll get you out of trouble here. You relax. Take a couple personal days, you know, and just, just find it. Athens got great spas, and you can get your nails done or something. And so you just relax there, Paul, and wait on us. It's been a hard time. You've had Philippi. You've had Thessalonica. You've, you've, you've got uh, Berea. They're coming. Just, just go relax, and you'll be fine. But not when Paul gets there. It's not in Paul's nature, as we've seen throughout these journeys. Paul gets there and he sees that the city is full of idols and it provokes him, it said. This idea of provoking means anger. It brings him to anger, but this this verb is in the perfect tense. So it's not just like a, a, a spew of anger, not just like this fit of anger that's happening, but a settled reaction to what he sees around him. Paul sees the the amount of idols full of idols that the city was and he becomes provoked even in his own spirit this is the same language by the way that we find in the old testament whenever uh the israelites form a calf out of gold and bow down and worship it it said that the lord was provoked there against them or, or, whenever they don't cast out all the bales or the Asherah poles and they they leave them in their presence and they worship the bale the Lord's anger was provoked there or like when the Samaritans themselves they later form a calf and and they bow down to it and it says the Lord's anger was provoked anytime that that idol worship becomes a place in the midst of the people the Lord is angry why because worship is only due to him and so Paul is looking at this and he's having the same reaction. He's provoked from within, and that provocation does not allow Paul just to sit back and relax. Paul has to do something about it. He can't just sit there and allow these things to happen. Paul is going to go and proclaim. While he's waiting on Timothy and Silas, he does the same thing he always does. He goes into the synagogue where they have the context, where they have the prophets, where they have the writings of Moses, and he he shows them from there how everything points to Jesus. But that's not enough, because that's not really getting at those idol worshipers out there who are bowing down to false god in their darkness. So Paul says, I'll go to the synagogues when they gather. But every day, he goes into the marketplace, and he begins to read with them and what is his proclamation he's telling everybody he can possibly find telling everybody he can possibly find that Jesus is alive he's the one who's come to save and the resurrection has happened and that means he is the Savior that you can look to he is the Savior that you can look to the strategy that Paul uses is going to provoke the Athenians the Athenians were intellectual elites as they believed as it even says he's he's even meeting with some of the philosophers the epicureans and the stoic philosophers there athens was the home of socrates plato and aristotle is the birthplace of democracy, music itself, ethics, theater, medicine. You see, their culture has allowed them to to evolve in some of the highest forms of intellectualism and and, and culture that you can find in the Western world at the time. And so as they hear Paul come in and speak of this foreign deity, they say, this is a bunch of babble. Who brought this babbler here? It mentions the Epicureans. A large group there in Athens, they, they believed that even if the gods existed, then they were removed and, and had no contact with, with, with the world. In fact, uh, they basically would have spun it in order and stepped away from it, being completely transient away from it, transcendent away from it. The Epicureans lived by chance. They simply enjoyed pleasure. They enjoyed life and lived by chance and just easy come, easy go for the Epicureans. Surely if they believed that there was a God like, like Paul was proclaiming, then it would mean something different for their lifestyle. I know what an Epicurean was at a young age. My, my grandfather's favorite restaurant on Main Street in Columbia, South Carolina was the elite Epicurean. You ever heard of that? I loved it because that's where Joe Penner went to eat lunch every week. He was Mr. Knows It, so I don't know if y'all know that about Columbia ultimately we can see that that elitism that idea was one that that we all look to and, and, and even bleeds in and i'll get to that in a minute but you don't have the epicureans you also have the stoics The Stoics here were different than the Epicureans. They weren't living by chance. They were were more believing in reason. Reason was hard. It was was everything happened by by a a specific purpose, and that ultimately it was all fatal. They were fatalists in their life. The universe was fixed. There was no chance. Everything is determined, and it's all going down. So they endured whatever pain. They endured whatever heartache. The Stoics believed in reason above all other things. So no wonder they saw Paul as a babbler, Jesus and the resurrection would mean nonsense to them, would change their very views of life and their very philosophies. And and before we go much further, let me take just simply a moment here, because this Greek philosophy is not too far removed from today. In fact, there's, there's phrases that come in, even to the church sometimes, that have their basis not in scripture, but in Greek philosophy itself. I'll give you just a few. One phrase, like let go and let God. The roots of this phrase are not found in Scripture at all. The roots of this phrase are found in Greek philosophy, not the Word of God. Like the Epicureans who seek to have people just kind of float along in life and enjoy it as it is, ignore the physical world, just trust, trust in whatever God you want to believe in and let everything get to chance. Let go and let God. The root of that is not found in God's Word but in Greek philosophy. Or in the wickedness of the prosperity gospel that is oftentimes often, which is no gospel at all. They say things like, name it and claim it. This phrase is not found in scripture either. It's the idea that we, could, we can just kind of speak our own reality into existence. Many of them believe this. You could, you could believe something positively enough that you could make it come about. That you could make it happen. You could speak your own reality into existence. This is Greek philosophy, not Scripture or the idea of fatalism the stoics believed in fatalism whatever will be will be that is not a phrase that we utter in understanding God's word God indeed has orchestrated all things he is sovereign the word of God teaches us that but God's sovereignty does not diminish our responsibility that we have God works, God moves, and God brings his plan to completion through the prayers of his people and their faithful obedience. And so for us, we don't just simply believe what will be will be. We believe our actions do matter. What we pray does matter. God not only has ordained the ends, but he's also ordained the means, prayer, good works, good deeds, that these things do matter to bring about the good purposes of God even in there. It's not whatever will be, will be. Just as it's not let go and let God. It's just as it's not name it and claim it. We stand as a people under God's authority and his word, and that's what defines us. So surely that's exactly why they looked at Paul and said, what is this babbler saying? Because many of them will do that same thing today to us when we offer the gospel to someone when we offer to their that doesn't fit with the philosophies they've heard from the world and it doesn't fit from the ideas that they've heard from others and so so for them it may just seem as babble just nonsense many today are steeped in such notions and when they truly hear the gospel they treat it as babble but that doesn't stop paul and it must not stop us right in fact, Paul continues every day to proclaim the good news because what Paul knows is this is not Babel at all. This is the hope that can transform lives through the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul keeps proclaiming it because what he sees is those idols in his city are darkness. And the only thing that can overcome darkness is the light, the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul proclaims the light. And it's not should not be surprising that the darkness is seeking to snuff out the light, but it can't. And so Paul continues to preach, to proclaim, enough so that those Epicureans and Stoics say to him, hey, you come with us. We're going to take you to the Areopagus. Pagus means hill. Eris was the Greek equivalent for Mars, if you will. So God, the god Eris, Mars. Mars Hill is what it was referred to then. The place of Areopagus was the place where the most venerable judicial court of ancient Greece would meet this was the court of ideas. You would bring these ideas, new ideas, into the Areopagus and you would offer them up almost like you're trying to get a patent for your thoughts, right? And so you would offer them up to the courts and the courts would determine what is true or what is not true, what is valuable or what is invaluable. They would determine what would continue. In fact, it was the Areopagus that Socrates stood before. And when Socrates offered his new way of thinking, they ruled it or considered it corrupting of the youth in athens and because of that he was guilty of error and they ordered socrates to drink hemlock and die it was the Areopagites who determined what was right or wrong or what could continue. And so now here is Paul. A few hundred years later from Socrates, the, the Areopagus is, is less has judicial power at this point, but more of a council that will speak. And they would have to give their stamp of approval on what Paul is teaching or preaching there in the city. And it was here Paul comes to be asked to give his new ideas. Surely this was a big moment for Paul. He's supposed to be resting and relaxing, waiting on Timothy and Silas. But instead, he's standing in the the most important place in Athens, and they're calling him to give an account So just as God has always ordained his steps and put him exactly where he needs to be, now he's there again, standing amidst the Areopagus, amidst all the erudite learners of the day, the intellectual elites of the day there in Athens. And they say to Paul, what is it that you are teaching? A city so steeped in the darkness of pagan deities, so trenched in the philosophies of the world, they say to Paul, what is it that you proclaim?" Tell us what you bring. So Paul takes his text, his text, if you will, a point of contact with them. He notices this altar in a city full of idols, so fearful that they would leave out one God, that they just created an altar there that was to the unknown God. And Paul references that, not condoning idol worship, but he's simply saying, let me tell you about the God whom you know that you don't even know let me tell you about the god whom you know but you don't even know who he is so paul references that and says there i want to expose ultimately he's about to expose the errors of all their idolatry by pointing to the one true and living god and why all all idolatry is foolishness and nonsense in light of the one true and living god and so paul begins to preach and he tells them four things about god one god is the creator of the universe he's the creator of the universe in verse 24 paul says i want to tell you about this unknown god this is who i proclaim to you the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man Paul is quickly to point out that this is not the same God as the Epicurean gods. This is not the same God as the Stoics. The Epicureans believe everything's at chance and God is distant from the world and has nothing to do with it. The Stoics believe in pantheism. Everything becomes God in and of their sense, but not this God that Paul is proclaiming. Quickly, he draws a line and says, this God is the creator, but he's not just any creator. He's the personal creator of all things. He made them himself. He's the personal Lord of all things he has made. God has fashioned them out of his own words, with his own hands, by his own glory. All things exist. So it's absurd for Paul to suggest that God this God lives in shrines or temples that you have made. You see, the big problem with idolatry is that it begins to worship the creature rather than the creator. And Paul is saying, Here, here's the God I proclaim to you. The God I proclaim to you created and made everything, and he does not live in your temples. He does not live in your buildings that you provide. Now, he's standing on the area of Pegas, Mars Hill, It's looking out over Athens. And what can he see from that point? But as he looks across a little valley over to the other hill, but the Parthenon itself, right? The temple made for the gods. And Paul is saying, the God I proclaim to you, the God I proclaim to you does not live in temples made by man. And that temple in all of its glory and all of its majesty, still some of its rubbish is existing today. But what exists but rubbish? he says my god is greater than your temples he does not fit in there in fact paul wants to make the point that it's not you who define god but god defines you everything is defined by him your worldview and how you see life must begin with this truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, as one pastor said, Genesis one is the hardest verse to preach in the Bible. Because once you preach that one and everybody believes it, everything else makes sense and follows. If we're talking about a God who was in the beginning, who created heavens and earth by his own words and his power, then that God rules and that God reigns and we must answer to him. And Paul is saying, this is the creator God I'm talking to. you. Everything is defined by him. He is absolute truth. One God, one Lord over all things. It's good for us as believers to remember this today. To remember that God is the one who defines things, not the world. I believe as Christians, even though we see a lot of bad things happen and we bemoan those things in our society, I believe as Christians we have every reason to be optimistic why because we've read the end right we know that no matter what people may think of destroying the earth it's in God's hands and Jesus wins and he's in control and so we understand and we have read that we don't live scared we don't live fearful We live in light of the understanding that our worldview is defined by God himself. So everything now is funneled through who he is and what he has expressed to us, revealed to us in his word. That's what we look to. Whatever he says defines us. We read the news or watch the news through the lens of God's word and his truth. He's the definer of things. Our elections, he's the definer of things. Our decisions in life, he's the definer of things. Our worldview finds at the very heart of it God Himself because He is the Creator who has established it all. Established it all. Paul says that's our point of reference there. But not only that, not only is He Creator, He's the giver and sustainer of life. The God Paul proclaims is the giver and sustainer of life. Look at what He says in verse 25. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything you see in in spite of the beliefs of the epicureans and others god did not create the world and spin it and leave it to itself he did not move away from it and leave it to itself. he's not just transcendent he is imminent he is close he's not just watching it turn In fact, we cannot think of God as one who is distant, but as one who is intimately involved in the every working of his creation. The scriptures proclaim this over and over. In fact, it tells us here, he's the one who not only created us, but he gives life and breath to everything. It is God who gives life and breath to everything. Now, I've said many times that every time our heart beats is a gift from God. Every time we breathe breath, it's a gift from God. Life and breath is a gift From God. But notice what he says here. Not only for us, it says for everything. All of creation that is living gets its life and breath from God Himself. God is intimately the sustainer of all of it. He sustains it all. He's not distant, He's close. I'll never forget one of my professors when when somebody asked, How close is God to us? He said something that has stuck with me throughout the years. He just simply said, God is as close as our own fingertips Paul would say he in him we live and move and have our being he's as close as us as we can possibly know he's the one who's keeping us alive he's the one who's sustaining us in every way if that's the case then we cannot like they did in Athens think that we could form God in a little image and put him in our pocket and carry him around to be used as a trinket anytime we need him to be used as if he's a good luck charm or as if he's a household cat that we have to feed him and care for him and watch over him because that's how they dealt with the gods they would make these images and they would fashion them then they had to keep them up then they had to work to keep them up and, and if you've ever been to a temple in another place you'll see they're bringing little food to them they're bringing flowers to them they're burning in sense for them because they got to keep up the gods but no matter what they do that structure that that idol of wood hay straw of gold silver stone is only going to crumble and going to fall no matter how hard they try to keep it up it cannot be sustained god doesn't need anything from us he doesn't need us to feed him he feeds us he doesn't need us to make a house for him. He, he is the one who, in him we live and move and have our being. God doesn't need anything from us at all. He's the one who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living creature. He guides, he protects, he provides, he sustains. And everything we're looking for has been given to us by God himself. We are absolutely dependent on him. He is not in any way dependent on us. He does not need us at all, Paul says. We need him. Whenever you think about creation itself, I've heard even in church in my life that God created us because he needed some way to express his love. He needed us, so he created us. My friends, that is heresy. The God of the scriptures does not need anything. He's sufficient in and of himself. In fact, forever, for all eternity, he's existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And existing in this way, he has everything he needs within the holy and divine trinity. His love, his affections, all is found there. Even worship is found there. So what he's calling us to do is welcoming us into what is already going on and has been going on for eternity. He doesn't need us there. In fact, there's a difference. God did not create us because he needs us. God created us because he wanted to. He wanted us to experience and know his glory and majesty. He wanted us to know his satisfaction. He wanted us. And there's a huge difference there from him creating us because he needed us from him created because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. God is the one who sustains us in all things. Creates, he sustains, Paul says. God is the one who rules the nations. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. All of human history, all of the nations of the world are in his control. It says he's determined when they live he created all nations from one man right he's determined where they live he's determined the time period they live in it says he's determined their their place and their time the lord has determined all of those things the time to live in the area to live in, in fact paul would say in romans 13:1 that even the leaders are put in place because god has placed them there and so ultimately, all the nations, where they live and what time period they were in, has been determined by God himself. He's the ruler of all nations. He's the ruler of all nations. None of us had any decision in who we were born to or where we were born, right? Now, we know, and I've said this over and over again, I'll keep saying it, South Carolina is the greatest state in the Union. And for those of us who are born here, we know that. God's grace in allowing us to be born here for those of y'all who moved here that's why you're here and so we're thankful for that but that itself is in the provision of God and why did he put us here so that we would seek him He said he's placed us in times and places so that we would seek him, having determined a lot of periods in the boundaries that they should seek God. The reason he's placed you here in this place at this time is to seek after him, to seek after him. But what happens oftentimes is we, instead of seeking after God and his righteousness, we suppress his righteousness with our own unrighteousness, and sin enters in. And so this is the story of mankind. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and the peace that they had with God was lost, men and women everywhere throughout all history have been longing to find that peace again. The problem is they keep looking in all the wrong places. They look in the stars. They look at the mountains. They look here. They look there. They try to find the peace that, that they've lost in, in, in anything in creation. They make in fashion idols. It even says gold, silver, stone. Bow down thinking that will satisfy them. That will find the peace they're looking for. And none of it can provide it. They're not looking where the only, to the only one who can truly provide the peace that they long for, God himself. And what Paul is saying is he has determined the periods that you live so that you could find him. You can find him. You keep feeling your way around, trying to get back, but he's the only one that can satisfy you. He's the only one who can bring this life and sustain you. That you should seek him. But they don't because of sin. They go to false worship, and they bow down to idols because they keep suppressing the truth and their unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1. It's what you desire, right? But you don't turn to him. You turn to all the places that can't give you what you long for. He's the one that satisfies. And you look for satisfaction in every other place. And what we find over and over again, if you're honest with yourself and you're looking for satisfaction apart from God, you may find it for a moment, but it's fleeting, right? It's here this morning and gone this afternoon. We're talking about a, a satisfaction that sustains us for eternity. Paul says that's the one this God who I proclaim is the one who who created you who sustains you who rules over you and if you don't turn to him there's coming a day when he will judge you it says in verse 29 being God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man we don't worship the creature we worship the creator the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Every person, Paul says, will have to stand before God. Everyone, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Everyone will have to stand before this one who created all things, who sustains, who rules. Everyone will stand before him as judge. And here's Paul standing in the area of Pagus and they're ruling whether or not what he says is true and whether or not they're going to allow it. And Paul, as he's standing there, just like Peter standing before the the Sanhedrin after they ruled that Jesus should be killed, Paul is standing there saying, you guys can make whatever ruling you want to make. What I proclaim to you is a God who is alive, who rules and he reigns. You're the ones who will be judged, not me. You're the ones who will be who have to answer for what you believe, not me. You're the ones who have to deal with what you do with what I proclaim to you today, not me. Paul here says that judgment is coming. This judgment will be universal. Everyone will have to stand before Him. No one will escape this judgment. This judgment will be righteous because God is righteous. And so he'll give what everyone just deserves. And this judgment is definite. There is a day that has been set for this judgment to take place. Everyone will have to give an answer. God will give everyone exactly what they deserve by the choices they make. And there's a day coming when that's going to have to be faced. Paul says, repent. Turn from your search. Turn from your search in all these other places that cannot provide you. Turn from your idol worship. Turn from this. Worship the one creator, God. Worship the one who can sustain you and who does sustain you. Worship the one who rules and worship the one who has provided for you an answer. Because every sin will be dealt with. Not one will be swept under the rug. It will either be dealt with by you and your rejection of the one true and living God, or it has been dealt with by the man whom he has appointed, Christ Jesus the Lord, who died in your place, took your sins, and rose again on the third day. You see, not one sin will be left unpunished, but all will be dealt with. And Christ Jesus has either dealt with your sins or you will have to deal with them yourself. So turn to Christ, for God is the creator, who I proclaim, he's the sustainer. Paul says, the one I proclaim is the ruler and the judge, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, it's different now in that context, right? now you understand who this god is and why it's important we respond to him now you understand the desperation we're in that we will face judgment to him and the only solution we have is christ jesus the son whom he has provided paul says today now turn to him for he's the one true and living god and your idols are worthless he's the creator the sustainer, the ruler, and the judge. And he has provided a savior. Surely it doesn't tell us everything he says here. Like before, Luke gives a, a summary of Paul's preaching. Well, it does tell us a little bit earlier here in this passage that what he proclaims was Jesus and the resurrection. And it says, Now, when they heard the resurrection, surely the resurrection, come on, we are elites intellectually. You're going to tell us somebody rose again. Many mocked. Many mocked and rejected. Some said, I'll, I'll listen to you again. You can come back. But others believed. No matter what, anytime the gospel is proclaimed, it demands a response. What's your response today? Do you believe Paul's message? There is one true and living God who's created all things, sustains all things, rules over all things, and will judge. And he has provided a way out that we can find in Christ Jesus, who died for us and rose again. If you trust in him, the judgment is freedom, no condemnation. Do you believe that? What is your response to the gospel? Do you build your life upon the reality of a creator who rules and reigns? let's pray together father thank you for your word is good thank you God for Christ help us father to build our life upon our Savior Jesus our Lord may no one here today still father be dependent upon themselves or or looking at the philosophies of this world as if they can save them may everyone here today recognize that there is one God one Savior his son Jesus Christ And Father, that you rule and you reign and you satisfy. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Turn hearts towards you even now. May they respond as your gospel demands a response. I close by reading. Before we sing Psalm 145 the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down the eyes of all look to you and you give them food in their due season you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near near To all who call on him To all who call on him in truth He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them The Lord preserves all who love him But all the wicked He will destroy. May God be near to us now. Let's stand together and sing.